0: Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we hear the music from The Last Jedi, made in 2017. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. When thinking of a score for the second film in a trilogy i think of the godfather part two and of course the empire strikes back as two examples of music almost transcending the original john williams was tackling part two of his third star wars trilogy in the last jedi his fourth trilogy overall if you count indiana jones and the plan to make only three movies and this movie carried a lot of anticipation At the end of The Force Awakens, Rey handed a lightsaber to the newly found Luke Skywalker, setting up what I thought was a great cliffhanger. But boy, did things turn out to be a disappointment. The Last Jedi took us in an entirely different direction with a new director at the helm who wanted to chart his own path. John Williams went along for the ride and gave us a score that has some decent standout moments, but is the music on par with The Empire Strikes Back or even Attack of the Clones? Joining me to examine the score is Paulius Aedukas, who gave us some great insight into the score for The Force Awakens. And it's great to have you back on the show, Paulius.
1: Hello, Jeff. I'm glad to be back on the Baton. Like everyone else in the world, I was very excited about The Last Jedi after seeing the cliffhanger scene in The Force Awakens. Not only did I wish to see The Last Jedi as early as possible, I also wished to experience the film in the largest possible format in IMAX. For me, living in Norway, That meant going abroad, since there were no IMAX cinemas here in 2017. So I picked London in the United Kingdom as my destination. The two biggest IMAX cinemas in that country. A digital screening at the BFI IMAX theater, and an analog 1570 mm screening at the Science Museum London. I had never before traveled a thousand kilometers just to see a movie. And some people called me crazy for doing so. And they were probably right. But I was a massive Star Wars fan, and I felt that I just had to be there for my most anticipated film of the year. I went to London with my sister, and I remember that it was a really cold, windy and rainy December night, as we were trying to find our way to the theater for the midnight screening, in a massive city that we had never been to before. But eventually, we did find it. And seeing all the other fans in elaborate Star Wars costumes were just as excited as we were, we realized we had come to the right place. Once the big blue letters appeared, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, and once the B-flat major chord hit the theater with all its power, I knew that it was all worth it.
0: Wow, that is amazing. You know, The farthest I've ever gone to see a movie was 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, and I definitely did not go outside of the country. So I have to applaud your dedication to see this movie the way you wanted to see it. So after watching it, what did you think?
1: Well, The Last Jedi becomes a sort of antithesis to The Force Awakens. And the new director Ryan Johnson decided to pave his own new way, re-evaluating what's important and what's not, throwing out many of the concepts that J.J. Abrams created for the new trilogy. For example, in the finale of The Force Awakens, as Rey extends the lightsaber towards Luke, the whole moment is treated with utmost seriousness and reverence, and both the screenplay and the music suggest that, In The Last Jedi, however, the first thing that Luke does is to casually throw the lightsaber away in a sort of comedic moment. So, there appears to be no unified
0: vision about what the sequel trilogy should be. And what's even more amazing about Ryan Johnson changing the direction of Star Wars was that J.J. Abrams was serving as executive producer of The Last Jedi, which means that he had the power to say no to a lot of the script ideas. But even with Abrams involved in some way with The Last Jedi, there was still no one person with the grand story idea for the sequel trilogy, and it definitely shows here. I think there might have been some ideas about Ray's background, but it appears that people just threw ideas at a dartboard and wrote scenes for whatever stuck.
1: I think that while the films are fairly alright, judged on their own, the trilogy as a whole seems to have been hurt by this clash of directors and their irreconcilable differences. I will say this about Ryan Johnson, he's a big fan of John Williams, and unlike J.J. Abrams, he goes to great lengths to show his admiration in practice. The mixing of the score is much better than in The Force Awakens, and the majority of the cues are well-balanced and can be heard unobstructed by sounds or dialogue. There are even some musical easter eggs in the score, and cameos of John Williams' previous work telling us that Ryan Johnson wanted not only a good score for his film, but also to showcase his fondness for John Williams' music. If you have the digital release of the film, you can hear the score in a music-only audio track, without any other sounds, letting you experience the almost wall-to-wall score completely on its own. For comparison, The Last Jedi had 23 more minutes of music than The Force Awakens, which also set a new record for John Williams. Ryan Johnson's working relationship with John Williams is also different from many other directors. Instead of doing traditional spotting sessions with the composer, going through the unscored parts of the film and trying to figure out what kind of music was needed and where, Ryan Johnson would rather fill a cut of the film with temp tracks from John Williams's earlier scores, such as *The Revenge of the Sith*, before passing on the cut of the film to the composer. The result of this is that the influence of these other scores can sometimes be heard. And Ryan Johnson was very much responsible for deciding the overall style and tone of each cue, and played a more active part in the scoring process than is usual for a film director.
0: I'm sure that drained some of the creativity out of John Williams when he sat down to his piano to start writing. And knowing that Ryan Johnson had musical plans for practically each scene meant Williams didn't have the ability to stretch his musical muscle very much, even if he had some good musical ideas. And I've Mentioned this before on the podcast in previous episodes, but the director has final say on the tone and feel of the score. The composer gets a lot of leeway, but ultimately has to do what the director wants. So Williams started work on The Last Jedi score in fall 2016, and the score was performed and recorded in Los Angeles by late May 2017. That's a full seven months before the film would be released, which probably explains a lot of the major music edits we hear in the film. Ryan Johnson probably kept tinkering with the film until the last minute, requiring many alterations to the music, many of which won't be too detectable for the average moviegoer. And as Paulius mentioned, there is a lot more music in The Last Jedi than in any other Star Wars film. And to help lighten the demand of conducting all that music, John Williams once again asked William Ross to take up the baton on some of the recording sessions. What kept me from liking the score is the feeling that There is almost nothing new here, at least nothing that really helps the score identify as its own thing and not lean on previous scores. As we hinted in our episode covering The Force Awakens, Kylo Ren's themes get more development in The Last Jedi, and the theme for The Resistance is featured more. But it sounds to me like a been there, done that score, which is not out of the ordinary for sequels, but it has not really been something that John Williams has ever really done.
1: As a fan of the score I'd argue against this Jeff. Although it is true that the stylistic choices may have been predetermined by Ryan Johnson's stem tracks and although there is a lot of homage to the previous Star Wars scores and themes, I still feel like John Williams has done an outstanding job. As I was listening to the score in preparation for the podcast, I started enjoying it even more. There's so much great melodic and harmonic writing, a beautiful orchestration, full of those small little minutiae that prove that John Williams definitely wasn't lazy or unoriginal, nor that he treated the score as mere derivative of previous work.
0: Yeah, I approached this score with thoughts of the scores for The Empire Strikes Back and Attack of the Clones, which were the middle films in the previous two Star Wars trilogies. In both, Williams took a giant leap forward musically in the Star Wars saga. Yes, even in Attack of the Clones. But I just feel a little bit of stagnation, and it's, as we said before, not entirely John Williams's fault. Now to prove this, there are really only two new character themes introduced in The Last Jedi. Rose, the spunky mechanic, gets a decent melody played for her throughout the movie. Admiral Holdo, played by Laura Dern, has a couple of musical moments, but her theme really only gets one chance to shine. So as I mentioned, Kylo Ren's theme has a little more playtime in The Last Jedi, and it's the secondary theme that seems to be featured the most. That's the one with the surging repeated notes, and it gets a great moment in a scene after Kylo is berated by Supreme Leader Snoke for not being the strong apprentice he had hoped for. Kylo is on an elevator, feeling like a child who has just been grounded. His secondary theme plays while he recovers from this verbal abuse. Then the stronger main theme plays when he crashes his helmet into the wall, determined as ever to be the Kylo Ren that everybody wants him to be.
1: Kylo Ren's theme gets some additional development as John Williams rewrites it as a march. Kylo Ren is seen leading an army of stormtroopers in the now empty Resistance base near the end of the film. And that scene is shot from above, which exactly mirrors a similar scene in Revenge of the Sith, where Anakin leads an army of clones to attack the Jedi Temple. The music is written in a very similar style. Let's go ahead and talk about Rose's theme, because, as you said, it's one of the new themes of the film. We learn that Rose is the sister of Paige, who died in the bombing of the Dreadnought at the start of the film. As Finn meets the new character, we hear, for the first time, a hint of her theme. Rose's theme is a very sweet, bright, and optimistic theme, which is also a nice contrast to the otherwise fairly dark film. The theme is built on a rising chord progression, going from D flat major to E flat major. This is how the theme sounds. The reason why the chord progression feels uplifting is that it sharpens the fourth degree of the scale, raising the G flat note up by a semitone, so it becomes G natural. <laughs> For comparison, if the scale would be a normal diatonic D flat major scale without a sharpened fourth, this is how it would sound. Nothing special, right? But when you sharpen the fourth degree, you get this scale. It sounds a little bit brighter, a little more playful, and it's what musicians would call the Lydian mode. Examples of it can be found both in classical music and in popular culture, where a bit of childishness and playfulness is needed such as in the theme for The Simpsons. The same chord progression and the same Lydian mode has frequently been used by John Williams in his scores. Take Yoda's theme or Anakin's theme, for instance, both of which share that same feeling of childlike innocence and optimism. Here is Anakin's theme. Again, we hear this central chord progression And here is Yoda's theme progression is even more obvious here. Getting back to Rose's theme, my favorite statement of it occurs later in the film, as Finn and Rose escape from the casino city can't abide on a horse-like creature called the Fathier. However, what is being developed in the film is only the A section of the theme. There's also a B section, which appears only in the Anchorage suite.
0: Perhaps this is giving a bit away about one of the big gripes about the last film in the trilogy, but Rose is hardly used in The Rise of Skywalker, so enjoy this theme while you can because I bet it's not used at all in the next film.
1: Yep, Rose's theme is completely gone in the next film, and Rose's character itself is reduced only to a minor
0: background role, again showing how
1: much the visions of both directors differ from each other.
0: And our other new character, Admiral Holdo, is one of the few characters in the Star Wars films that seems to be very important, but we don't get to know much about her and she, what she's done before, and so we have don't have a lot of time to connect with her. And besides her rank and a brief mention of what she's done previously, the only thing making her seem important is just Laura Dern's presence. I had a difficult time identifying a musical motif for Admiral Holdo, Paulius, but. Perhaps you can help with that.
1: I'll be glad to do that. But first, I have to agree with you that Admiral Holdo feels severely underdeveloped as a character. If you recall the Force Awakens episode, I mentioned the show-don't-tell method of character development, which J.J. Abrams used really well. Ryan Johnson, however, never does something like that with Holdo. We are merely told that she has been important to some kind of battle in the past, which we know nothing about, and that Leia holds her in high regard, but besides that we know nothing about Holdo apart from her antagonism towards Poe. Her character is associated with a specific motif that is first introduced when Holdo decides to stay on the doomed ship. As she says farewell to Leia, and as the Resistance escape ships take off, Luke's motif and then the Force theme lead into the resolute Holdo's theme. The theme gets an even more powerful statement as Holder decides to save the Resistance by flying her ship at light speed into the Supremacy, sacrificing her life for the cause. Suddenly, the whole scene goes completely silent, and the visuals of the exploding spaceships are probably the most spectacular in all of history of Star Wars.
0: Oh yeah, it does make the scene that much more impactful without music or sound effects. So let's talk about the time on the island with Rey and Luke. It had all the potential to rival the moments between Luke and Yoda on Dagobah in The Empire Strikes Back, but Ryan Johnson strikes a very different tone. Luke doesn't want to train another potential Jedi after what happened with Kylo Ren, aka Ben Solo, but when he does, he sees too much of the dark side in Rey and tries to hold her back. It was a waste of Mark Hamill's talents and it seemed like Ryan Johnson didn't really know how he was going to proceed from that cliffhanger in The Force Awakens. The music did have a nice tone to it though. Well, we have to remember
1: that Yoda wasn't keen on training Luke either, And he was that same kind of hermit as Luke is in The Last Jedi. So it took quite a bit of convincing from Obi-Wan and Luke to change his mind. But you're right in that Luke's character is very much changed in The Last Jedi compared to all the other Star Wars films. I even remember the Extended Universe material where Luke is presented as a legendary teacher, eager to take on new padawans after the events of The Return of the Jedi. So the choice to portray Luke as the opposite of all that is a quite shocking one and many viewers didn't like that, including Mark Hamill himself. There are two melodies used for the scenes with Luke on the island. The first one is in triple meter, written like a saraband piece, in the style of Georg Friedrich Händel, but with modern orchestration. The second motif is livelier, written in common time, with ostinati played by the brass section. Displays when Luke goes spearfishing on a steep cliffside. The Oslo Philharmonic has been performing a lot of symphonies by Jean Sibelius recently, so maybe I'm primed to see his music and everything now. But I really feel like these two pieces by John Williams share that same Nordic style of Sibelius' second symphony. If you listen to the finale of that symphony, you'll hear that strikingly similar sound. And, speaking of Rey, her theme gets some development as well, as she begins her Jedi training. Although it's mostly stated in a fragmented way throughout the film, it does get a few beautiful moments. One of them is heard when Rey trains with her lightsaber on the Acto island. The cue is called lightsaber training, and we can hear some tiny melodic developments as Rey's theme is played against Luke's island theme.
0: So this is one reason why The Last Jedi score doesn't hold up as well for me. John Williams had so many opportunities to give his favorite film character more musical development, but he only gives us the full treatment of Rey's theme in one big scene as she becomes stronger with the lightsaber. All the different components of the theme were ripe for some excellent permutations. And I'm not sure why Williams didn't use this opportunity.
1: I've got a theory for that. Whereas The Force Awakens is the classic beginning of the familiar hero's journey, full of optimism and idealism, The Last Jedi is more conflicted, in a similar way to The Empire Strikes Back, where our main hero is facing major challenges to their understanding of the world, and feels lost between the light and the dark. For example, when Rey says, I need someone to show me my place in all this, these sorts of things have to be reflected musically. One way of showing that the main hero is confused and without a clear direction is to make their theme scattered, fragmented, and to prevent its heroic resolution. Although we do get this resolution during the very last minute of the end credits, there probably doesn't exist a convenient place for that kind of resolution in the film.
0: Yeah, I I see your point there. And it also, when you talk about uh, the main theme being scattered, fragmented, and Uh, preventing a resolution it reminds me of my favorite musical moment in return of the jedi i listened i could listen to it over and over and it happens during luke and vader's final fight after vader taunts luke the orchestra and chorus erupt and as i mentioned in my episode for that film luke's theme is broken up and rearranged to signify his confusion over fighting his anger and giving into it so i agree with your assessment of ray's theme development as you theorized it so there's one sequence that seemed to not really move the story along and it was the Canto Bight Casino sequence. Rose and Finn are sent there to find a man who can break the first order code to disable the device that can track the Resistance fleet through hyperspace. Yes, it brings Oscar winner Benicio del Toro into the Star Wars universe, but nearly everything about it seemed to be an excuse to give us another opportunity to show us weird aliens and weird creatures. The only good thing about it was the musical introduction to the casino, which had a little bit of the flavor John Williams created for the katina in Star Wars.
1: The scene is filmed in a really cool way, using a long take, as the camera glides seamlessly through the whole busy room, through the characters and across the tables. It's a reference to a similar shot seen in the 1927 American silent war film called Wings by William Augustus Wellman. John Williams wrote a very fun cue for the casino scene. In the end credits, it's credited to the famous Aquarello do Brasil by Ari Barroso, although most of it is original, with instrumentation that is reminiscent of the cantina scene in A New
0: Hope. Well what actually happened with the music for the introduction to the casino scene is a small snippet of the music from Aquarela do Brasil is melded into the original composition by John Williams, hence the need to give it credit. The entire piece though is one long variation of that piece Aquarela do Brasil, but only about eight seconds is lifted directly from Barroso's composition and here's that eight seconds just so people can understand where it is
1: as finn and rose find the master code breaker ryan johnson of john williams pay homage to the cinema 1950s and 1960s with a classic looking scene and a 10-second musical motif to provide the required character It sounds really familiar, like something from a Max Steiner or Nino Rota score. Very old school. And there's also a reference to Terry Gilliam's dystopian comedy Brazil, when Rose and Finn are arrested for illegal parking. They are told that they have violated the clause 27B-7. In Terry Gilliam's film, uh, which makes fun of excess bureaucracy, there is a ridiculous form called 27B-6. stroke Brian Johnson loves that film, which is why I included these references to it.
0: Yeah, that's sort of similar to George Lucas putting the number 1138 in a lot of the Star Wars movies, which references his first feature film, THX 1138. So moving along with that sequence, Rose and Finn find another codebreaker in their prison cell, played by Benicio Del Toro, acting a little bit loopy. As part of their escape plan, they release the captive animals called Fathers, and try to escape the planet. This is a fairly fun action cue, and I really like the slurs that he puts in the strings at the beginning. And here's the first minute of that cue. In the middle of the mayhem is a quiet piano tune playing in the casino before we see the fathers trashing the casino more. And here's a bit of that music. That music might be familiar to fans of the baton. It comes from the 1973 film The Long Goodbye, that Robert Altman film in which almost all of John Williams' score hinged on one melody. I saw that film get music credit as I watched the movie the first time, but I had never heard of The Long Goodbye as a movie or even know that John Williams did a score for that movie. Remember, this was at the end of 2017, a full 10 months before I would even come up with the idea of doing this podcast. After watching it a second time, I figured it might be in the casino scene, and though the little John Williams end joke is very fleeting, and maybe even a little bit hard to hear, it's still fun to have it in there.
1: The Long Goodbye is another favorite film of Ryan Johnson's. So I would imagine that he had that music playing on the temp track. The Long Goodbye piano melody is played on the Last Jedi soundtrack by none other than John Williams himself. Right after that, a timpani hit returns us back to the Fadiers skew. That timpani is played by John's brother, Donald Williams. So here we have two brothers being soloists for one small moment in the score. I absolutely love that.
0: So we've talked before about Williams using a lot of his previous Star Wars themes quite heavily in The Last Jedi, and we can't go through this episode with talking about that scene with Leia floating in space. I vividly remember hearing laughter in the theater when Leia somehow used the Force to pull herself back to the ship after the deck explodes from a First Order blast. I didn't laugh, but I still find it to be a very, very weird moment, especially since all. Almost all of us were wondering if Leia would be killed in this movie after news broke that Carrie Fisher had died a few months after completing her scenes in The Last Jedi. As controversial as the scene is, the music for it is not. John Williams reaches into his musical arsenal for beautiful renditions of the Force theme and Leia's theme, and I think it's the music that keeps the scene from being completely absurd.
1: is probably the greatest rendition of Leia's theme that I have ever heard. The Force theme gets due throughout the film, especially in the famous scene between Luke and Ghost Yoda. Yoda's theme also makes a return in The Last Jedi, and it's sandwiched between two different statements of the Force theme. I think it's interesting to note that John Willems ends the two-force themes on the Neapolitan chord, which doesn't give that theme that same optimism as his statements in the original trilogy, which ended the theme on a more usual major chord. The Neapolitan chord is a major chord built on the lowered or flattened second-scale degree, and it got its name from a group of Italian composers, many of whom studied and worked in uh, Naples in the 17th and 18th century and who popularized the use of that chord in classical music, and particularly in Italian opera. John Willems introduced this harmonic change to the Force theme already in the prequel trilogy, and that's what helped The Revenge of the Sith produce its darker, tragic mood. This works really well in The Last Jedi, when Luke Skywalker is increasingly troubled by his past and an uncertainty about his future. Let me play it for you. So. Here is the original force theme, with the original ending. In the harmony we hear a transition from the minor tonic to the major 4 chord. This interval of a perfect fourth sounds bright and confident And it's often heard in all sorts of themes and anthems that need a touch of heroism Now, listen to the modified force theme The melody is the same, but the harmony suddenly ends on the Neapolitan chord This transition from the minor tonic to the lowered second degree major chord feels a bit weird and unnerving, as it doesn't give us that heroic harmonic resolution. Luke doesn't feel like a hero at this point in the film, and it is only during his death scene that the forest scene gets its original heroic ending back signifying that Luke has finally found the resolution that he wanted.
0: Yeah, thanks for that. I've never heard about the Neapolitan chord before, so it's very interesting to hear how you could kind of see the wheels working in John Williams's head as he's record as he's composing this. So the showdown between Luke and Ren was one of the highlights of the film. I felt like it was going to be similar to the fight between Obi-Wan and Anakin in Revenge of the Sith, and in some ways This confrontation is staged better because it's not really about using lightsabers, but Luke outsmarting Wren to save the resistance. What really made it more exciting for me was the musical setup to this scene, as John Williams created a nice ostinato and handed it off to various sections of the orchestra as Luke walked out onto the salt flats to confront his former apprentice. I just love how the dynamics of the ostinato build and build, leading up to Wren's failed attempt to, quote, fire on that man. I didn't really have a favorite musical moment in The Last Jedi until now. Listening to that 80 second piece there just shows how John Williams can take a simple series of notes and use what I consider to be one of his signatures, floating it around the orchestra to keep it fresh and compelling. It's definitely one of the
1: highlights of the score, Jeff. And as you say, the slow buildup of its dynamics and energy is what really sells it to the listener The 19th century Austrian composer Anton Buchner was famous for the style of music, slowly building an explosive finale from small, simple motifs. The cue could have well been inspired by the second movement of his last Ninth Symphony,
0: Definitely feels like an inspiration there. I might be giving Ryan Johnson too much credit, but maybe he had this Bruckner piece in the temp track, hoping John Williams would pick up on it.
1: I really like the music for the actual confrontation. We have awesome vocals, dramatic timpani hits throughout the piece, as well as the loud, dark trombones that end the cue. I think that Ryan Johnson must have used one of the Battle on Mustafar cues as the temp track because the style and sound of the music couldn't have been more similar.
0: How did you feel about Luke's death scene?
1: I liked it, Jeff. It is scored using the binary sunset, and as it happens, he does in fact look at two suns setting just before he disappears forever, creating a poetic parallel between The Last Jedi, A New Hope, and The Revenge of the Sith, where that same cue was used with those same two setting suns.
0: For me it was emotional because of the music, but I thought it was just a little bit of a cop-out. I really wanted Luke to play a bigger role in this trilogy, and it's strange that the hero of the original trilogy gets to do less than Han Solo did in all of The Force Awakens.
1: Yeah, it would have been fun with some more Luke Skywalker scenes, but it seems that both Ryan Johnson and J.J. Abrams agreed that his role in the sequel trilogy should be minor. Same as Yoda's in The Emperor Strikes Back.
0: So The Last Jedi ends with a weird extra scene with a boy holding a resistance ring, looking at the starry sky. And when I saw this the first time, I thought I saw it right when you see the boy reach for a broom, and it looks like he uses the Force to grab it. This got me very excited for what would happen with this kid in The Rise of Skywalker, but this little boy doesn't have any role in that movie.
1: Yeah, I noticed that he uses the Force on the broom as well. But, unfortunately, that boy is never seen again in the trilogy. As the music builds, he raises his broom as if it were a lightsaber. Notice the subtle use of a triangle to emphasize the shooting star. John Williams is clearly paying attention to what's going on screen. And I love that tiny subtle moment. Although the scene is nice, I feel like it's still out of place and that it breaks the momentum of the film, especially after all the things that had already happened. I'm also not a big fan of yet another binary sunset cue, especially when we just heard one a few moments ago.
0: Well, I've read a lot of comments about the ending and most people say they would prefer that the Star Wars saga end just on that shot of the kid possibly being the future of the Jedi Order. Others just wish it hadn't been filmed in the first place. I think I kind of agree with that second one. And there have been a lot of fan theories about who that little boy is. Some think he's going to grow up to lead the next Jedi Order. Others say, correctly, that this is just a red herring and that J.J. Abrams won't acknowledge this little scene in The Rise of Skywalker. So despite the many gripes with the film, The Last Jedi was a hit in Christmas time 2017 and Making $1.3 billion worldwide in about five months. Ryan Johnson had no plans to direct the final film in the trilogy, and after a couple of directors worked in pre production, J.J. Abrams agreed to close out the trilogy and help put the ship back on course. While that happened, Ryan Johnson was working on a script that would put him back on the top of respected writer directors, releasing the murder mystery Knives Out in 2019. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences had a rule that scores for sequels had to contain about 60% new music. I suppose The Last Jedi fit that rule, but I have to think it was just barely, given how much previously written themes were used. John Williams received his 51st Oscar nomination for this score, competing against the likes of Hans Zimmer, Carter Burwell, and Johnny Greenwood. Winning the award that year was Alexandra Desplat, who many regard as the heir apparent to John Williams. Ward award for The Shape of Water was his second Oscar in just three years and was well-deserved. So that's gonna do it for this examination of the score to The Last Jedi. Paulius will be back with us on the baton for the final film in the sequel trilogy, and I'm looking forward to having you back for it.
1: Thank you, Jeff. I'm looking forward to our discussion of The Rise of Skywalker. And I'm really happy and honored to be joining you in these final episodes of this long-running podcast.
0: It's been a great pleasure for me. Yes, Paulish, you're going to be part of the last film score discussion on the baton. Yes, a lot of people probably could be jealous. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks, everybody, for listening today. You know how to reach me if you want to comment on the show, jeffswim at AOL.com. Paul Wright will be joining me on the next episode to talk about the small but intimate score Williams wrote for the Steven Spielberg film, The Post. Until then, the baton is down.